This is the 25th full-length episode of the Chicago History Podcast and the last episode of Season 1. We are thrilled to have reached listeners all over the continental United States, Kaluakona, Hawaii, Mexico, Germany, Christchurch, New Zealand, Vietnam, Greece, France, Canada, Japan, Argentina, Singapore, China, Spain, India, Ireland, and more. Thanks to all of you listeners for checking out the podcast. It really means the world to me. I mentioned this is the end of Season 1, but don't worry, it will be a short break. I'll be back in fewer than three weeks at the end of this month with a special Halloween-themed episode, so please make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss it. This is also a good time to check out past episodes you may have missed. True crime fan? Listen to the Wanda Stopa Brainiest Murderous episode. Love Chicago sports and shady land deals? The Chicago Cougars hockey team episode should hit the spot. And now, with just a few weeks to go until Halloween, this is indeed the first of two consecutive episodes discussing some of the spookier aspects of Chicago, one I'm calling Chicago's Ghoulish Past. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get started, I should mention this episode deals with death and bodies and murder and other creepy stuff. While not explicit, it is probably not recommended listening for delicate ears. One of the first cemeteries in Chicago was located at what is now Chicago Avenue and North State Street in the late 1830s. At the time, this area was considered quite remote, a perfect resting place for those who passed on. By 1848, as the city grew around the area, the decision was made to move those buried at that early cemetery to a new place, the Chicago City Cemetery, located north of North Avenue and what is now Clark Street. For those of you who checked out the episode about the high bridge slash suicide bridge of Lincoln Park, I briefly mentioned Lincoln Park's former use as a cemetery. A little background on Lincoln Park today, for those of you not familiar with this area of Chicago, there is a neighborhood called Lincoln Park and a park called Lincoln Park. Although Lincoln Park, the park, stretches along the lakefront from Ohio Street Beach in the Streeterville neighborhood, that's closer to downtown Chicago, all the way to the north to Ardmore Avenue in Edgewater, some eight miles north. For this discussion's purposes, we are talking about the section of Lincoln Park adjacent to the Lincoln Park neighborhood. That part of Lincoln Park is home to such family-friendly destinations as the Lincoln Park Zoo, the Lincoln Park Conservatory, Theater on the Lake, a rowing canal, the Chicago History Museum, the Peggy Notabart Nature Museum, the Alfred Caldwell Lily Pool, the North Pond Nature Sanctuary, North Avenue Beach, Oak Street Beach, numerous playing fields, a very prominent statue of General Grant, as well as a famous statue of Abraham Lincoln and many other statues. From the 1840s until its last burial in 1866, this land, the land of all that touristy fun, was the Chicago City Cemetery, an area at the time that was considered North Chicago. By the late 1850s, owing to the rise of the city up to the edge of the cemetery, 
Combined with shoddy burial practices and the many bodies who were buried after dying of cholera, there were concerns that diseases would leach into the drinking water of the city just south of the cemetery. According to newspapers of the day, many bodies were not well buried and there was a putrefying stench in the area. Calls were made to have those bodies relocated to more rural cemeteries like Rose Hill and Graceland Cemetery. Uh, By the way, for those of you not familiar with the area, Graceland Cemetery, considered rural at the time, is about a half a mile north of Wrigley Field today. This would be no small undertaking, no pun intended. At the height of use, there were an estimated 35,000 persons buried in that area. This included a potter's field for the poor and unclaimed, and as many as 4,000 deceased Civil War Confederate POW soldiers from Fort Douglas. If you're wondering where the potter's field was, it was right about where the baseball fields are today. Side note, remember that first cemetery I mentioned? On Saturday, December 3rd, 1864, that is 16 years after those bodies were allegedly disinterred and moved to the city cemetery, workers putting in sewer lines in that original area found, quote, a half score of coffins, end quote. I had to look it up. It means 10, uh, which then had to be moved to the city cemetery. Not very thorough. Further complicating the city cemetery relocation efforts was the Great Fire of 1871, which swept across the cemetery, taking with it many of the wooden grave markers. Chicago writer, artist, and educator Pamela Banos has done some amazing research on the city cemetery in her project Hidden Truths, available online and a great resource for this episode. I'll have a link to it in the show's notes if you want to dig deeper on this subject. Banas estimates that of the 35,000 buried in the park, no more than 22,500 bodies were relocated. That leaves about 12,000 plus unaccounted for. If you're waiting for me to say they were eventually moved, it does not appear that was the case. There is still one notable sign of Lincoln Park Cemetery past, the Couch Tomb, which is situated in the curve of LaSalle Drive behind the Chicago History Museum. Ira Couch was a hotel owner turned real estate investor who died in 1857. John von Osdell, the city's first professional architect, had been hired by Couch to design a family mausoleum, which was completed in 1858. Not much is known about whether any other family members are buried there or why it remained when most other tombs were moved, but the prevailing thought is that it was too expensive and just too difficult to relocate. There was another cemetery just south of the Chicago City Cemetery, a cemetery for Catholics, Bounded on the north by North Avenue, to the east by what is now Astor Street, to the south at Schiller, and to the west at Dearborn Street. In the mid-1870s, plans were made to disinter those graves as well to create residential homes. One newspaper article I found included some pretty horrific details of hastily removed caskets from the Catholic Cemetery, Empty holes and limbs left behind. From the article, quote, 
It is not an uncommon sight, that of children marching off with the pale reminiscence of a defunct limb. And not long ago, two youths engaged in combat, each armed with the relic of an arm. That land was soon home to multi-million dollar mansions owned by people like Potter Palmer and the Archbishop. It is now part of Chicago's fabled Gold Coast. Something to keep in mind, in the 145 years since that Catholic cemetery was allegedly cleared of its former occupants, there have been numerous reports of skeletal remains being unearthed during construction in the area. Those years include 1900, 1947, 1971, 2004, 2006, 2008... We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American. Hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. And if you think I'm done, I've got one more. As recently as 2010. The next time you're jogging, biking, playing baseball, or having a picnic in Lincoln Park, you may just be standing mere feet above the forgotten dead. Let's talk about grave robbing, shall we? While early grave robbers sought jewelry and anything of value within the casket, in the mid-1800s, there were also grave robbers who sought the corpses themselves, which could be sold to medical colleges for anatomical study. Grave robbers even included students from Rush Medical College here in Chicago, now known as Rush University, a part of the Rush University Medical Center. Over the years, grave robbers have also sought to dig up corpses to then hold them for ransom. One of the more notable examples of this was in 1978 in Switzerland, when famed actor Charlie Chaplin's corpse was stolen and a ransom demand was made of his widow Una of $600,000. Una refused to pay the ransom, saying that her husband would have considered the demand, quote, ridiculous, end quote. Five weeks later, police arrested two out-of-work auto mechanics who led them to Charlie Chaplin's body, which was then reburied in a concrete grave to prevent future theft attempts. If you're wondering the Chicago connection, there isn't a big one. Just thought it was interesting. Although, Chaplin did spend a few months here making movies uh, in 1915. A little closer to home, not even Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president, was immune to an attempted grave robbery. Lincoln was buried shortly after his death in 1865 and remained undisturbed for 11 years when, on election night in 1876, a group of Chicago counterfeiters turned grave robbers traveled to Springfield in an attempt to steal Lincoln's body. 
Their goal was money and a pardon for a jailed pal, all which went horribly wrong for them. Back then, Lincoln's body was housed within an above-ground white marble sarcophagus in a tomb on the grounds of Springfield, Illinois' Oak Ridge Cemetery, located about two miles outside of town. No groundskeeper lived there, and no night watchman patrolled the area around the president's tomb. Keeping out any ne'er-do-wells was a single padlock on the tomb's chamber door. Once past that padlock, one was not faced with getting through many feet of concrete to get through the body. No, the lid of the sarcophagus was sealed with the much less permanent plaster of Paris. Great for making sculptures, not so great for keeping out bad guys. After hiring someone they thought was a professional grave robber who was actually a Secret Service agent, the counterfeiter's plan quickly unraveled. They did not get access to Lincoln's body and were later arrested. Lincoln's body was later hidden away in the basement of the nearby memorial building. It was later moved a few more times, all in secret, before finding its final resting place in the monument-slash-tomb in a ten-foot-deep vault under tons of cement. In June of 1932, at Mount Carmel Cemetery, just west of Chicago's city limits in Hillside, Illinois, a gunfight broke out near the grave of a recently buried gangster. Al Capone at the time was serving 11 years for income tax evasion, and George Red Barker, a teamster who by most accounts aspired to take over for Capone, was gunned down just after midnight on June 17th of that year after exiting a car just south of the corner of what is now Pulaski and North Avenue while walking with two men and one woman. Somehow, none of the others with Barker were hit by the volley of bullets. Although witnesses claimed to see a car speeding off after the shots, police found a discarded machine gun and bullet casings in a room on the second floor of the building at 1502 North Crawford. That street was renamed Pulaski the following year. Clinging to life, Barker was carried by his associates two doors down to the Norford Hotel, still in operation as of this writing, said to be the headquarters of Marty Gilfoyle, the head gangster in that area Barker was planning to visit. Barker was then brought to the Keystone Hospital at 1623 North Costner, long gone, where they were greeted by locked doors. Kicking in the door to the hospital, one of them reportedly shouted to the nurse, Take care of this man. Money's no object. Man, I hope I get to say that someday. The nurse helped carry Barker to a bed and informed the associates there was no hope of saving him, at which point the associates took off. The head of the Keystone Hospital notified Barker's brother of the killing, and Barker's brother, Dr. J. Gould Barker of the Martha Washington Hospital at Irving and Western went to the Keystone Hospital to assist in the post-mortem exam of his own brother's body. One report claimed 18 bullets were pulled from George Barker. Another claimed 36 bullets. Either way, that's a lot of bullets. 
Back to that gravesite shootout. Shortly after midnight on Wednesday, June 22nd, Mount Carmel Cemetery caretaker Joseph Sobel, age 50, was driving to Section 26 in the southwest corner of the cemetery when he saw a group of men standing over a gravesite, throwing flowers to one side. Calling out, what are you doing? Sobel was greeted with a half dozen gunshots. He was able to get behind his vehicle and because Chicago drew his own pistol and fired two or three shots in response before his gun jammed. The hoodlums, as they were referred to in the Chicago Tribune story, continued firing, puncturing the hood of Sobel's car, his windshield, and both his front tires. The caretaker ran back to his office and notified the watchman, some watchman that guy was, who then notified Bellwood police. The Bellwood police were unable to find the hoodlums that had taken off. Police initially thought the thieves may have been there to steal back the elaborate wire cages for the floral displays at the well-adorned George Barker funeral. Barker's funeral had nearly 400 of them. One report claims there were 18 full carloads that carried flowers to the gravesite, including a 10-foot cross made of roses. But then police discarded that theory and focused on whether Barker may have been buried with valuables and important documents in his $10,000 bronze casket, casket that would be about $190,000 in today's money. By the way, the papers from back in the day called Barker's funeral, quote, the showiest gangster funeral Chicago has seen in the last two years, end quote. Members of the Northwest Side Tui Gang were later credited with killing Barker. Here's one of the stranger grave-robbing stories of Chicago, one that includes a celebrity angle. In 1957, 24-year-old movie star Elizabeth Taylor, at the time one of the biggest stars of the world, married 47-year-old movie producer Michael Todd, the third marriage for both. Born in Minneapolis as Avram Hirsch Goldbogen and raised in Chicago, Todd was best known at the time of his marriage to Taylor for his Academy Award-winning 1956 production of Around the World in 80 Days. Todd had other connections to Chicago, including a movie theater called Michael Todd Theater on Dearborn, just south of Lake Street, and a theater cafe near Clark and Lawrence. On March 22, 1958, Todd, along with three other passengers, died in a plane crash in the Zuni Mountains near Grants, New Mexico, about 75 miles west of Albuquerque. Todd had named that plane Lucky Liz. Todd's body was incinerated with only some bone fragments, scraps of clothing, a portion of the seatbelt, and, according to reports, his 10-carat wedding ring which was returned to Liz Taylor. Todd's remains were buried in a body bag in a grave in Forest Park, Illinois' Beth Aaron Cemetery at Des Avenue and Roosevelt Road, part of the Waldheim Cemetery. Side note, Todd's family purchased six family plots at Beth Aaron because at the time, Jewish funerals were not permitted in Chicago. Forest Park cemeteries are said to be among the first in the area that did not discriminate against Jews, hence the Goldbogans' decision for the location of their family gravesite. 
Fast forward to 19 years later, in June of 1977, an elderly woman visiting the cemetery noticed a toppled gravestone and an unearthed and empty casket, that of Michael Todd. Police were called to investigate the matter. Those responsible for this ghastly act first had to move the roughly 400-pound granite tombstone about 10 feet. They then had to dig a a 4.5-feet-deep hole to unearth the bronze coffin. They then pried open the coffin's lid, smashed a glass case, and grabbed the rubber bag containing Todd's remains. Police estimated the entire operation took at least five hours, and because of the weight of the heavy tombstone, would have required at least two to complete. A search of the cemetery later turned up only one clue, a shovel likely used by the thieves. Through a spokesperson, Liz Taylor claimed to be, quote, very upset and as baffled as anyone over the motive, end quote. Police suspected vandalism or an anti-Semitic act or maybe an attempt to extort money from Taylor, but no demands were made. With the help of a private investigator, the rubber bag was found within a few days and reinterred. Although no one was ever charged with the crime, it is widely assumed it was the work of mob types looking for the $100,000 wedding ring, although the casket contained nothing of material value. Speaking of mob types, let's talk about an unofficial cemetery, DuPage County's infamous Gangster Graveyard. DuPage County, located west of Chicago proper, is the home of Argonne National Laboratories. Back in 1988, acting on a tip, police searched an area not far from Argonne Labs near Route 83 and Bluff Road. For five months, police excavated the area, turning up two bodies not far from the former home of syndicate enforcer Joseph Jerry Scalise, who at the time was in prison for a London jewelry heist. The first body was unearthed on May 16, 1988, with the second on June 9th. After five months, confident they had found all they would, police left the site. Nearly 19 years later, on March 20, 2007, workers digging sewers for new townhomes near 91st Street and Route 83 made a grisly discovery when they unearthed the remains of reputed mobster Robert Charles Cruz of Kildare, Illinois, who vanished December 4, 1997. Cruz had been shot twice in the head, rolled up in a carpet, and buried about eight feet deep, several blocks from the infamous gangster graveyard. Though Cruz disappeared a decade earlier, DuPage coroner Pete Siegman said they were still able to identify him through fingerprints. Cruz also had identifiable tattoos on both arms. As it is with many mob killings in Chicago, none of these murders have been solved as of this writing. I do hope you've enjoyed today's episode about Chicago's ghoulish past. As always, I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have a different topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast. I can be reached by email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. 
I will be posting news articles, pictures, and ads from back in the day related to this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. Check it out and give us a follow, please. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. If you would, please take a moment and like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a few friends. It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. Thanks for listening. 